questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Germany had never been a nation-state in the same way France or England had been since the end of the Middle Ages. Nevertheless, there was a nascent collective cultural identity among all German-speaking peoples of Central Europe. These include inhabitants of present-day Germany, Austria, and the northern cantons of Switzerland. Over the course of the 19th century, a number of German-speaking political entities, kingdoms, principalities, free cities, and other political corporations in the western part of the German-speaking area were unified by Bismarck into a state ruled by the Prussian king and now Kaiser, Willem I. The century saw Germany go from a collection of independent, almost tribal kingdoms to a new empire. At the dawn of the 19th century, all of Europe was involved in a cultural debate between Enlightenment thinking, couched in neoclassical aesthetics as a new approach proposed by the Romantics. Germany was no exception. The Enlightenment valued the rational mind above all else. Enlightenment thinkers questioned received traditions and extolled the virtues of simplicity, precision, and clarity. Enlightenment aesthetics resolved around mechanistic models. The whole world was seen as a great machine or clockwork with the creator as the great clockmaker. Politically, the Enlightenment favored the development of international institutions and interconnections. It was in the name of Enlightenment that Napoleon conquered much of Europe in wars lasting from 1803 to 1815. Romanticism, on the other hand, criticized the arrogant naivete of the Enlightenment and insisted on the primacy of emotion for human happiness. Romantics turned to the wildness of nature extolled the quote-unquote noble savage and delved into the night side of life, into dreams and myths. In the romantic introversion, the individual body was revalorized, as was the collective organic body known as the nation or folk. The energy to throw off Napoleon, the foreign conqueror who had originally been welcomed to Germany as a liberator, came from that romantic spirit. Additionally, Germany continued to pioneer policies of public welfare, such as health insurance and benefits for disabled and elderly citizens. By the turn of the century, Germany was the most technologically advanced, highly educated, and industrialized country in the world. The expected national ambitions commensurate with these accomplishments in a world that had little room for an upstart major player in geopolitics could only lead to disaster. Throughout the 19th century, the symbolic world of volkism, the realm of scientific research and the occult subculture, were fermenting toward the eventual outpouring of an intoxicating brew in the 20th century. But it must be remembered that all and everything the 20th century manifested, the entire spectrum of activity, had roots in what went before it in time. There is nothing inevitable or natural about how any of these older ideas were used by later artists, scientists, or politicians. Each remains responsible for his own actions. We shall now explore in more detail the foundations of the folklish, scientific, and occult realms of the 19th century. You are listening to Veritas. If this is your first time listening, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, join the Veritas family and click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. Subscribe with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focus Life Force Energy. Get a 15-day free trial of FLFE today. We also have rebounders, pure organic sulfur, flash drives with all our Veritas and Sanitas seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And now, here's your host, Mel Hostelrick. Dr. Stephen Edred Flowers, PhD, received his doctorate in Germanic languages and medieval studies from the University of Texas at Austin and studied the history of occultism at the University of Göttingen, Germany. He's the author of more than 25 books, including The Revival of the Runes. His newest book is The Occult in National Socialism, The Symbolic, Scientific, and Magical Influences of the Third Reich. His website is seekthemysteries.com and he joins us directly from Smithville, 
Texas. Hello, Dr. Flowers, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? Hello, how are you? I'm fine. I am fine, man. Call you Stephen. Yes, you can. It's a pleasure to have you on. I just finished the book. At the beginning of your book, you discuss the essential questions that must be answered. What are some of those questions before we begin? Well, when you undertake a study of a complicated uh, subject, one needs to, of course, uh, define the terms we have in the title, uh, the occult. What is the occult? I have to define that. I have to define magic, a subset or a corollary of the occult. And then, of course, national socialism. How many times are people calling each other Nazis today? And I think that uh, with the state of just general education about history, where I don't think many people know what that is exactly. So I actually define that so that when I say occult in national socialism, it has to be directly connected to national socialism and it has to be uh, occult. Now, occult is a very broad thing that can basically simply be defined as not my definition, but sort of academics who specialized in the study of the esoteric and such, uh, will say that this is disestablished knowledge, such as astrology is a cult, astronomy is science, but at one point they were the same. But the astrological aspects get disestablished, mainstream thought doesn't accept it anymore, and so it becomes a cult. Or it could be things that have yet to be discovered or are on the cusp of being discovered, but mainstream thought doesn't accept it. And that's where you find a lot of things that Hitler pioneered in how to manipulate the masses can be categorized in his day as occultism, Uh, Whereas eventually people are teaching these methods in schools of advertising and public relations today at the university. But uh, I read through Mein Kampf for the clues to this kind of thinking on his part and found uh, quite a number of examples of it. What is the major thesis of the book? Well, that there's uh, there's uh, n- numerous ones, or there's a, a major one is that uh, the National Socialists uh, pioneered and used techniques, uh, individuals within it, better said, uh, in order to uh, gain power and hold on to power po- politically. And uh, they themselves, this is another major thesis of it, they themselves were the subject of uh, the zeitgeist, the spirit of the times that they lived in, which were uh, embroiled in occult thinking, reform-minded thinking. Hitler, uh, most people are astounded when they hear this, it was a uh, teetotaling vegetarian and vehement anti-vivisectionist against all use of animals in uh, uh, experimentation or uh, medical research and things like that. He wasn't alone. Uh, Many of the others were also. But that's all you say, well, where did they come up? But that was a common uh, cultural thread at the time in Germany uh, uh, was the reform movements, which had all of these uh, nudism, uh, vegetarianism, health food, all this sort of thing was just the rage in Germany in the early decades of the uh, 20th century. And they were the children of this generation. And uh, that uh, these reform-minded people were uh, in the mood to take, uh, accept, and engage in radical solutions to profound cultural political problems. And uh, the National Socialists were just a wrong choice, but they uh, mastered this one aspect of the whole uh, operation, which is obtaining and holding on to 
political power. And since we're going to be discussing the occult throughout the, the interview, can you define the term occultism? Well, I think I, I did. That's a disestablished or unestablished knowledge. What about the difference between occultism and mysticism? Well, mysticism is a uh, technique or an experience of becoming one with the universe, with a god, or but it's unio mystica, right? The mystical union between the self and uh, some idealized uh, construct. But, and ma magic is more what they engaged in, which is a communicative, operative, where you operate the universe, uh, doing things in order to gain a certain effect or to gain certain knowledge that is otherwise uh, unavailable to hu humans. And uh, that's with divination and things of that nature, prophecy and such. But uh, uh, that is what they were engaged in as actual uh, magic in the sense that uh, this was aimed towards manipulating, uh, controlling, communicating, if you just want to make it value-free, <laughs> uh, just uh, communicating with the masses. You see, that's where what we've learned how from that and elsewhere how uh, advertising works how that's the whole key. We communicate, we send a message to the, to the masses through some medium, and then we get a response. And that response for an advertising a, uh, executive is purchasing Purchase. our products, yep. right? Or, or politicians voting for me, uh, et cetera. So that's the response. I don't know why I'm thinking of Edward Bernays right now and the, the father of modern-day propaganda. But, um, you know, I'm trying to define these terms because these are the foundations of the work. Similar question. What is the difference between the esoteric and the occult? Well, the uh, occult is generally applied to a practical per purpose, whereas the esoteric per se can just be as more of a initial stage, or it could be just stopped there. It's just a way of approaching uh, knowledge, hidden knowledge, uh, where it's graduate. Uh, Antoine de Favre, you know, has uh, sort of defined that for us uh, in the modern, in the current intellectual climate. And uh, there are certain sta stages of knowledge, initiation, uh, that there is something hidden that is revealed through the study of the hidden, which is all es so esoteric and occult. You know, linguistically speaking, these are very much synonyms, and only specialists have sort of separated the words out in order to say, well, occult is applied. Occult is applied knowledge, uh, where you're div divination, doing techniques, to, to, whereas esotericism, you could just study, think, meditate, and you don't really uh, necessarily have to say, okay, I'm going to cause something to happen or acquire some knowledge, which I'm going to make use of. That's more of the, uh, the, the world of the, the occult. Again, we're... We are uh, using these words in specific ways, and then that's why it's important to define them. I hear so many people uh, say, uh, well, they use words like magic, like the occult, but they never bother to, to define them, much less, in this case, Nazi and what that really is. So uh, that's why definitions are extremely important. Probably a lot of people just skip over that part of books, but uh, that's unfortunate because if those words are used throughout, you want to understand them in the way that they are intended and not bring uh, your own uh, definition to it can lead to misunderstanding. In essence, can we say that Hitler, Third Reich, used magic or sorcery to brainwash the population? Well, yes, of course. Uh, when you realize that uh, magic and sorcery are, are things which aren't just, when we stop and think, when most people think about 
magic, sorcery, and they only understand it when it's uh, in a certain context, like some medieval witchcraft or something. Um, you know, that's all that they, they see, or they want to see that in what the Nazis did, and there was very little of that sort of thing. But when you see the mass rallies that they conducted and you read and say this is what Hitler was doing and how others who they designed these rituals and uh, in those days the mass demonstration or a staged presentation of your ideas in this sort of epic uh, setting was a a type of communication to, to the masses and they mastered this idea of ritualism. One of the things, I have a picture in there of it, uh, there's a thing called the Cathedral of Light that they used, uh, wherein they, uh, all the, these uh, uh, spotlights that are used to shoot up into the air, we see them advertising, I used to in my, when I was a kid, that these lights, you know, these spotlight things that go into the sky. And they arrayed those uh, a hundred of them around the field and then shot them up in a, in a to a point above there so that the whole field was 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 a, subsumed in a a ceiling a vaulted ceiling of pure light that sort of thing it was just astounding like what we think of laser shows Hitler would have gone crazy with the laser show uh, that sort of thing so uh and they would use these, uh, they were experiences of performance art, you know, uh, and uh, it was all honed to a fine mode of communicating to the masses to not to argue with them, not to say, now, look, you know, we're, this is my idea and it's a better idea than the other guy has. No, that's not it. It's, it, it's a, uh, a, a magical experience whereby this individual would typically represent the whole uh, people and uh he would then uh as he rose up he would start off his speeches kind of timid shuffling around like he didn't know what he was going to say next that was part of the act and then he would start to build and build and build and and would be just in an ecstatic empowered state by the end of it but he had identified uh, he had uh, used the techniques for example he would emerge from the back of the crowd often he wore a simple very simple uniform and 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 emerged from the back of the crowd saying i am one of you but of course the greatest of you and uh, and i know what to do to make everything all right and uh, so but it was all part of a, a, a performance that was repeated hundreds and hundreds of times. Just to be neutral and objective, as any journalist would do, and, and without injecting prejudice or preconceived notions, can you also define national socialism or Nazi, which, by the way, comes from the word nationalist in German, nationalist. Mm-hmm. Nationalist. 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 Yeah. Uh, nationalist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So... Yeah, that's all it means is, uh, you know, that, that like they call them, uh, and you're just shortening the word, you know, as a nickname. And, uh, and it goes back to before there was national socialism, there were nationalists who were kind of ruffians or thought of as ruffians by more civilized folk in Germany. And so Nazi, I have a, an appendix on the word, uh, meant, uh, or could mean something like just a, a, a ruffian, you know, a thug. And that sort of thing, but that's uh, and that's why national Nazis never called themselves Nazis. You'll never hear them say that they would get in trouble for that, you know. So uh, because it was a pejorative term uh, in the common language of, of German at the time, and so that that was what their enemies called them. You know, so it's fine to call them that. Uh, but I, I want to uh, say national socialist so that you know, for some, on occasion so as to define it as a political movement and party. Also, it is a definitive. Nazi doesn't mean anything or it means whatever you want it to mean, uh, you know, uh, but national socialist defines what they are. That is, they're nationalists. That is, in German, the national means uh, 
uh, in the true Latinate sense of the word, it means our ethnic group, our people, a tri- almost a tribal thing, but a larger than a tribe. It's all the, it's the, but it's an ethnic distinction. We think of as Americans, we hear the word national, and we can say, well, you know, the National Football League, or it's a national. Whatever, meaning it's over the whole state. It's found everywhere. It doesn't have that connotation in modern English, I don't think. Uh, but in German, it does. It's a foreign word. And the German word for the same thing is one that I also frequently use there, and that's folkish, which we could just say folkish. The word folk, like folk music, folk songs, folk uh, folk, folkish things that is belongs to our people, you see. So that's what national is. And so Hitler in uh, the, the 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 Nazis in their party uh, platform, they described, well, what is the nation? What is the nation? Well, it is all German speaking, German born or German people who are Christians. That was explicitly meant to exclude the Jews because uh, there were really no other uh, minority, religious minority there. So uh, they say that it's, you have to be a German, you have to be a Christian. That's in the, in their platform. And uh, then socialist, they are, were socialists. That is, and it's defined there. What does that mean to them? It means the good of the many over the good of the individual. It's a collective uh, value system. How is that different from Marxist socialism? Well, yeah, yeah it's very uh, interesting. That they are very close, but there is a distinction which is decisive, which is that the Nazi is bases belonging and the classifications of people on biology or what they think is biology. That is, it's the blood. Whereas the Marxist is a class system, right? It's an economic class distinction that they are talking about the proletariat versus the capitalists and uh, the church, church, capitalism. It's all these class distinctions. It's a matter of socioeconomic class versus biology or ethnic uh, belonging. But otherwise, they're they, they're quite close. Hitler took mo- uh, most of his operative uh, or just operating procedures from the Bolsheviks, but he did them in a much more stylish, well thought out way. Uh, for example, in Mein Kampf, he says, "Are these socialists? They have red banners, and I have noticed in their rallies, the people love these red banners. They 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 gravitate to them. They are they, they admire it. They 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 are moved by these fluttering red banners. And so, therefore, our banner also must be primarily red in color." He says that in the book. His main reason for writing the book, no, most people didn't read it. It's very boring and so forth. Uh, but uh, but he was writing that book really to other uh, people in the party or to would-be competitors to convince them, any of anybody that might want to compete with him, that he was the smartest guy in the room. He knew what he was doing. He knew secrets. He knew special things about how to operate this whole thing. And so, and then, and, and so he was writing that for, for them. So that's why he, he spills the beans as I put it you know, also repeatedly telling how he, how he's thinking, how he, but most people wouldn't read it, but the ones who did said, Oh, that Hitler, he's really on to something. He really knows what he's talking about. You know, that's what he wanted to, to convey. Why do you think, and we'll talk about Christ, the Christian aspect of national socialism later, but why do you think so many other researchers say Nazism appears to be pagan or even satanic, which, by the way, in my opinion, should have been ascribed to the Bolsheviks, but no one talks about that. Sure. Well, I do. Uh, you can see the uh, my uh, book uh, uh, I wrote many years ago called Lords of the Left-Hand Path about 
satanic left-hand paths of all sorts, and I have a whole section in there about the Bolsheviks as well as the Nazis and evaluating them with this uh, lens as to whether they were, quote, satanic or whatever. And uh, so uh, now, uh, the reason why they are accused of being uh, uh, pagans is because some of them were. There was uh, 50, 60, 70 million people. About 4 million of them were heavily, which is a small minority, but a significant one, um, a significant part of the culture, were uh, uh, something very close to what you could uh, describe as neo-pagan. They were uh, either uh, unreligious uh, had all sorts of movements that were uh, free, so-called free churches, uh, independent of all the confessional denominations, et cetera, making up their own sort of version of things, uh, but uh, also things that were somewhat neo-Germanic and, and looking to the Germanic past. Uh, and Himmler was, was uh, very closely allied with this. Only two of the major uh, Nazi uh, officials resigned from the church, which is what you do in Germany. You can do that because people are actually signed up to a church so uh, as children from their families. And uh, so you have to get separated from it, you actually have to resign. And only Himmler and Rudolf Hess did that among the major players there. And uh, but why are they why is this said so much? Well, there was a significant minority. I said was a few million uh, people who were neo pagan, but they were and they like to use this Germanic imagery in some of the rituals. Now you'll notice that really and actually most Nazi imagery comes from a Roman aesthetic. Their architecture was all. Greco-Roman style. There, uh, the banners you see them marching with these banners. That's all Roman style banners, just like the ancient Romans used. Uh, that was the main aesthetic. The Third Reich is uh, the Third Reich. The First Reich is the Holy Roman Empire. The second is the Empire of 1871 when Germany was united. And then this was to be the third empire, but it, that means that's in the Roman line of succession, not that anything Germanic. Germanic values would be uh, were an anathema to anything Nazi because it was tribal and indiv- individualistic, and they were nationalist, trans-tribal, and collectivist. So the whole value system is not very Germanic, to say the least. But uh, the satanic angle, why is that? Well, uh, there were famous occultist uh, in the old days. There was a guy by the name of Lewis Spence, an Englishman, and he wrote a book that was very popular during the war, and it was called The Occult Causes of the Present War. And I discuss it in the book quite a bit. And uh, if you see that book, it is just a litany of how the Germans are a satanic race. Their witchcraft and diabolism and Satanism is everywhere. All of them are all a bunch of, it's like a satanic panic uh, book, uh, but written about the Nazis. And it just, was just propaganda. It was just a way to drum up hate for the Nazis, you know, in the war. And uh, but then uh, during the war, they people come to believe this, and uh, there's an inverted cross. So I'm bad. Well, you know, it's like, oh, that's okay. But you really want to get a rise out of somebody, you put up a swastika instead, and you'll have a riot on your hands, right? That's really taboo. The other stuff's play like you know, horror movie stuff, but uh, so that's why they were have been attracted to it, uh, and uh, so but that's the origin of why the satanic angle is there. There's no inkling of anything like yeah, in the Nazi movement. Was the definition of national socialism a unified or ideologically centralized philosophy like Bolshevism was? Uh, as a philosophy, 
could could be, but it wasn't really applied, you see, because I have a, a section of the book where it says, uh, headed by a phrase, Hitler, uh, the leader who didn't lead. He, he uh, gathered all these people that had some talent, ability, uh, whatever they had, uh, and, and gathered them together and directed them, but very loosely. That's why he, uh, Himmler, for example, who was into all of this neo-Germanic type stuff, runes and all, uh, Hitler thought that was nuts. That was just silly. And but he didn't say Himmler stopped that because that's what floated Himmler's boat. You know, that's what he was interested in. That's what made him enthusiastic for the job. So I just got to, you know, let him go and let him be happy with his uh, position. And, and that's, he, he uh, will be a better soldier if he's happy with all of that. So he just let it go. And so he wasn't like uh, uh, the Bolsheviks of Stalin or someone like this. They were looking at. If you looked funny, if you looked a little like you weren't buying the line, the party line exactly, well, then you need to be exiled, sent to the gulag at best, liquidated, possibly also. Uh, but they used, they applied ideology like a razor, uh, whereas the Nazis said, you know, I mean, even if if a, a Nazi official, high up Nazi, had Jewish friends, you know, a Jewish person, he he could protect them. They could, so they survived the war. So, you know, those are famous sayings: who, uh, "Who the Jew is around here, I will determine that." You see, it was like loose, you know. So they could accuse people of uh, being. A Jewish sympathizer or whatever they wanted to say and send them to a concentration camp. But at the same time, people who were actually Jewish could be protected by someone who was uh, high up enough. And uh, so that's because these people, like all uh, Bolsheviks, Nazis, one thing they have in common, it all goes together. They are first and foremost gangsters. They're a group of guys who get together, and instead of saying, well, we're going to have this turf, we're going to have this territory, you know, where we run this racket. No, why do that? Say, we're going to take over the entire country and control everything and own everything. There's no greater heist or racket than that. And that was what both of them were uh, bent on doing, and that's what both of them did. And uh, I think Hitler was certainly inspired by what he saw Lenin do Is this, and how he took over this country. Is it because at one point, obviously, Germany was not even a country like France and England, and you had, you know, Swiss, uh, Switzerland, partitionally speaking German, Northern Italy speak, speaking German, Austria. Is this why? Well, this was uh, uh, Hitler's problem, and he says he saw it and describes in Mein Kampf, is that the Germans had no sense of nationhood. Now, wait a minute, our whole party and everything is nationalism. Well, what is the nation? Is the German-speaking people of Europe? That's what the nation is. But wait, they don't have this sense of nationhood. So I must make them, it's our program to instill this sense of nationalism. Whereas Germans, you go uh, hear people who live in Germany, Germans themselves will say if they're from Bavaria or they're from Prussia or they're from Saxony, all these old tribal lands that make up the country, they still feel uh, first and foremost, they're Bavarians, kind of like I am as a Texan with Texans. First, right. you know, that's just kind of, it's a nation, you know, it's a, it's an identity, et cetera. And Germany is like that. Uh, and always has been because it only became a unified country of, in, in any way in 1871. Although an ancient uh, Roman historian named Tacitus wrote a book called Germania in the first century. And so there is, it was uh, a Germany. There is a Germany. It, uh, he had, uh, the Romans knew what it was, but it wasn't unified politically until 1871 for, you know, almost 2000 years later. 
And so, so Hitler's problem, as he saw it and he describes it, is I've got to instill this sense of nationhood in all of them and unify all of them. And uh, so, and, and then he reveals why he became an anti-Semite. He says, I wasn't raised that way. My father was not an anti-Semite. I was not interested in it. I had, But I, I realized that the way to instill a, a sense of nationhood in the German people is to have an enemy, someone that we can act against, someone who we can blame for all of our woes, etc., just as a mechanical, propagandistic uh, way of manipulating people's minds. This To have an enemy is essential. And so they were it. <laughs> but it didn't come from a, a deep sense of Christian anti-Semitism, which was the origin of, of it, that the idea that all those medieval uh, prejudices against the Jewish people uh, or any sort of new age or crazy idea that was more of a 19th century racial kind of a thing either. Uh, so, uh, but rather, you know, the, the medieval hatred of the Jews is something that he played on. And that's what really, mo without that, medieval anti-Semitism, Auschwitz would have been impossible. There's just the Jewish people were very well integrated into German society. And by that time, uh, for uh, and had been emancipated for a long time, places in Eastern Europe, in Russia, in Poland, etc., uh, Jews were not very well uh, emancipated or integrated into the uh, rest of the culture. But uh, they were, they, in Russia, they couldn't study at the university, so forth and so on. Whereas in Germany, that was one of the things Hitler used in the propaganda against, because they used, uh, the universities used merit. They passed the test, you have high scores on tests, you, you get in, and that's it. And so he would point out, in the medical school in the University of Vienna, 60% uh, of the students are Jewish, you know. And of course, then that was he would say that's look they're taking that spots away from the Germans, et cetera. Uh, but you see, it was pure merit, and they were allowing that. Of course, you want to. That's who you want. You want the best people uh, to be in your positions of study and so forth. Uh, of course, we had the same thing. There were quotas on the uh, Harvard, Yale schools like that had quotas on. Uh, specifically aimed at Jews to keep them out of the school. They could just be one or two percent of the student body. Uh, so, uh, of course, anti-Semitism was not limited to Germany. And Germany was probably one of the least anti-Semitic countries in uh, Europe at the time the Nazis came to power. But those people who were anti-Semitic were really moved as, uh, by their message. You know, and you see what uh, I say, a medieval anti-Semitism, well, that's one of the uh, hallmarks, people say, uh, progress, so the myth of the modern, the idea that progress, so the use of reason applied, we will make uh, human progress will occur if this is applied reasonably. But that uh, goes back to Francis Bacon and others, this myth of progress. And the more educated, the more enlightened intellectually people are, the more pro progressive in pro uh, they are as far as their ability to solve problems and their freedom from medieval nonsense and prejudices and so forth. But when history demonstrated in 1933, that Germany, the most educated, more Nobel Prize uh, people, uh, the more PhDs per capita than any other country, et cetera, and all of these intellectual things could overnight or seemingly overnight revert to medieval superstition. They say progress cannot be real because the very people you would expect to be the most uh ready for the some modern uh, rational new age are reverted to medievalism 
same thing. We can see uh, they're not alone. Things like Iran, right? Uh, under at the, before the Ayatollah came to power, the Iran was westernized, uh, uh, liberal society as far as people's rights and and so forth and so on. Is the most progressive in the in the um, Middle East or among uh, Muslim nations, the most westernized. Even Afghanistan. Well, Afghanistan has the has a huge problem uh, in general. Is that it's the, it is the most single most illiterate nation in the world now? Yeah, forever. I mean, that's always been that way. So those those pictures that came from the nineteen fifties of Afghanistan that you see the women without the burqas and you know at college, you almost it looks like you're walking in Tehran, uh, but it's actually mm-hmm. in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was all pretty good. Uh, but, uh, but you see again, like we, with example, with the Nazis or the idea of progress, uh, there's always some element in the society, like these radical Muslims in Iran, uh, who are willing to step right back into the middle ages and force everybody else back there with them, you know? So it's not, it's not just Germany. <laughs> Before I, I wanted to dissect the program and demands of the National Socialist German Workers Party, the NSDAP. But before I ask you that, do you think National Socialism would have been the movement that it became if Hitler had not existed? You had to have him, you know. It would have been some kind of uh, some kind of right wing uh, thing might have been present, but uh, the Weimar Republic was a world of chaos and. Uh, so forth. I mean, things had to fall into place just exactly right, and that's something where you people were thinking, "Oh, he's had some kind of magic uh, to to get into power in the first place to to make the events uh, fall his way." And so there were explanations. There's a famous uh, magician, uh, clairvoyant, and so forth, named uh, Eric Jan Hanussen, who was a stage magician. He was Jewish. Also, but he was a supporter of the uh, brown shirts, and uh, he uh, worked for Hitler uh, without being asked to. He just did it. He had newspapers, uh, occult newspapers, uh, your astrology to, for today, and and so forth. And he was a stage magician, but he had all sorts of pro. Hitler, that he's the man of destiny. He is the man who will get us out of all our problems and so forth. That's predicted by Eric Jan Hadusen, the man who sees all better than Karnak the Magnificent. He was you know, tremendous. And so a lot of people were working in that direction and everything did fall into place. I mean, Hitler never won a majority of, uh, of the election. You know, the electorate, it was 40 some odd percent, but the way the parliamentarian uh, system works, wherever it is, is the head of state, the president, the king, the queen, whatever, has to ask someone to be the prime minister and then they form a, a coalition and rule and govern that way. Hitler, he got his foot in the door on January 30th, uh, 1933. And within just a couple of weeks, I don't, I can't remember the exact timeline, but uh, the the Reichstag fire quote happened in quote. I mean, they obviously did it themselves, and then blamed the communists and said, "We've got to have emergency powers, you know, to take care of this situation." Just by I mean, burning that one building, and uh, and so they got emergency powers, and those emergency powers just kept on stacking up. And within a matter of weeks, Hitler went from you know, a guy, a minority uh, chancellor, to an absolute dictator. I'm so glad you, you mentioned know? this because it was in the tip on the tip of my tongue. I wanted to ask you about the Reichstag fire because mm-hmm. immediately after, what did he get? Well, fatherland security. After 9/11, mm-hmm. what do we get? Homeland security. He got the Enabling yeah. Act. We got the Patriot Act. Do you see the similarities? Mm-hmm. Yes, there are similarities, and it's not, you know, you don't want to be partisan about it because it's not a partisan thing. You know, the famous Democratic operative, uh, Rahm Emanuel, never let a crisis, a go, crisis to waste. go to waste. Yep. You know, so anybody, uh, Hitler 
or anybody else we're talking about here uh, have uh, challenges when you have to to operate within a democratic system, that there's some kind of form of democracy wherein, you know, you have to get some kind of uh, advantage within the existing system, as opposed to someone like Mussolini, he just kind of marches on Rome and the king or whoever it was just said, oh, I'm just going to turn the government over to you because you're just so fancy and you look so good. Or the Bolsheviks, I mean, it's just kind of like a force, right? They, they just they didn't stand for elections or anything. They just took advantage of chaos. And Hitler could have, or you might have expected something like that to happen because at the end of the uh, First World War, you see that that's what really enraged the Germans and made Hitler possible was the bad uh, botched end from our standpoint uh, of World War One with the Versailles Treaty and all those other things that were unjust in the sense that Germany didn't militarily lose the war. It was just an armistice. But then at that point, German and Austrian governments both collapsed. Of course, the same thing happened earlier in the war, First World War process in Russia, where the where the Tsar collapsed. Basically, was uh, the ousted, uh, and so all of this was happening within the same general time frame. It was the way of the world at that time, and uh, so uh, this chaos, chaos ensues, and and and. and so forces promising and giving the look of uh, law and order you see, uh, to restore that, uh, that was what the prime, and that's why the, the Nazis, for example, they uh, dressed in uniforms, even if they just got a brown shirt and you know, just a few things, but they had this uniformed appearance. Most of them were just wearing what they came back from the Western Front wearing or the Eastern Front wearing. That was just their old uniforms from the First World War. And uh, But they, they, they were dressed in a military, paramilitary fashion. And this was magical in itself in the sense that it was to project the image of, of order and of command and of the ability to take command and take control and uh, change things for the better. This exuded that kind of image, and that was intentional. There's a book called the uh, uh, Organizationsbuch der NSDAP, which is the organization book of the National Socialist Party, and uh, it is a huge, big, thick thing. And it uh, contains every little detail about what your uniform should look like, all of the party of the officials and all of the badges and everything is all meticulously laid out. And all of these things were efforts at what we would call today uh, marketing or branding. They're branding their product, which is the party and the leader and our philosophy. But it's being treated as a as a kind of a product which is being sold to people, and uh, they were masters uh, of it. And it involved things that you think like, well, why are they all these uniforms? And so, well, those have meaning. That's a message. That's the magic of it. There's a message when you send by dressing a uniform. I'm dressing for success. You see, and the other guys, our enemies, our chief. Enemies to the other side are the Bolsheviks or the socialists, and uh, they dress like you know in old raggedy uh, overcoats and things. They don't have any kind of uniformed appearance at all. They exude chaos, and that's what we're trying to uh, to get away from. You see, that's our problem: is chaos, poverty, and uh, and such things. And so that was uh, they clearly identified these things symbolically and exploited the symbols. I want to analyze the program and demands of the National Socialist German Workers' Party, and we'll, we'll continue referring to it as the NSDAP. But let me read, if I might, number 21, which I find some of these very interesting. Number 21 says, the state must improve public health through protection of mother and child, prevention of child labor mm-hmm. by imposing a physical fitness program 
by means of establishing legal obligations in gymnastics and sports, and by supporting all organizations concerned with the physical training of youth. That's just one, one example of mm-hmm. about 25 of them. Can you discuss some of the others? Well, it's uh, it was formed uh, from the beginning. Now, people wanted to say, uh, we should change this. Uh, Hitler would refuse ever to change any part of it. Uh, things about, uh, for example, uh, the newspapers or media, uh, we would say that it has to be controlled so that, of course, only the party message uh, will be getting out to people. But uh, the media is should come under state control uh, as well as education and so forth. Uh, uh, one of the main things and uh, one of the things that appears in the p- platform in bold letters and was a much part of the socialist aspect of the thing was and also in their minds, a racist, anti-Semitic plank in it was the idea that everyone must be a worker. That is a German workers party. What does that mean? Worker? Well, it defines it in there. You must work either by your hand or your brain or your mind, uh, but you must work for a living. And what it's talking about is no one should live off interest. And just have be rich. I just make money. Money is in the bank. I'm living off the interest. They thought that was a Jewish thing, and it's you know incorrect or not a the truth. But that was their way of approaching it. And so they thought by eliminating that, they would eliminate both capitalists uh, as far as taking away their privilege, as well as in their minds the Jews. And uh, so the the it has a uh, he, uh, in bold letters in there says to, we intend to break the bonds of interest. They were going to, uh, and this never happened because Hitler got into the back pocket of bankers from the beginning, but uh, the, uh, the ideal, when, as when they were rabble rousers and they were expressing their ideas, the idea that there would be uh, a, a breaking of interest, that there would be no interest earned, you see, uh, on money. Because I said that's that's unworker, that's an anti-worker. So that was the big platform, uh, uh, plank in the platform of of, of their uh, economic plan. And it was there, you know, it was taken. There's uh, at one point, Christians, the church, uh, said that uh, interest, earning interest on loaned money, is usury. It's a sin of usury. Now, when I was a kid or when I was younger, uh, I heard, you know, usury is the charging of excessive interest. But originally it was the charging of any interest at all. Uh, so Christians were against that originally. Uh, and and that, that really put a crimp in the economic world of the Middle Ages. And it was really with the reinstitution of banking that uh, fueled the Italian Renaissance and brought the um, – the uh, Europe out of the Middle Ages and into the modern world, you know, this generally the earning of interest, charging and earning of interest is not allowed in Muslim countries. That's considered because it's a very medieval uh, value system. And so it was not uncommon. Uh, you know, it wasn't unique to them, or, uh, but, and it was not practiced by the Nazis. Uh, honestly, that didn't happen. Well, didn't he borrow money from Prescott Bush's uh, yeah. Brown Brothers Harriman? Yeah, whatever. Yeah, he was a banker's control. So, you know, he, uh, that was but I'm just saying that's in the platform, you know. Not in practice, but in the platform, yes. In the platform as a propaganda. You know, people like that idea because they were saying we're not capitalists, we're not bankers, we're not the rich fat cats. Uh, we're, we're, we're workers, we're soldiers, we're common uh, people, you know what I mean? So it was part of the, the image, the, the brand that they were selling, but that is, uh, in the, 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 the platform in there, you know, that's so, uh, as far as what these points are about, uh, they're put out there for people to read and for the uh, population to read and be impressed by, uh, that everything was, like I said, the, basically they were, like the Bolsheviks, the Nazis are gangsters. Uh, 
you know, uh, uh, talking about anti-Semitism and other things, uh, Hitler was a great admirer of his, his greatest hero uh, was not Bismarck or somebody like that, but it was Henry Ford, because Henry Ford was a uh, ideological anti-Semite. He wrote a book or called the the International Jew, and Hitler had a, a portrait of Henry Ford behind him his desk in the Brown house. And, uh, and uh, he admired Ford so much that he said, well, one of great Henry's greatest accomplishments, you know, was giving the people a car, you know, the car for the people, the model T and says, I'm going to make one also. And so he made the Volkswagen, yeah. the people's car. And he designed that car. He actually drew their sketches that uh, exist designed for the Beetle, you know. So, he, of course, he, he was a pretty good designer. I mean, I don't know, he was just kind of a watercolor, uh, you know, uh, artist of a low, you know, of not much talent, but as far as an artist is concerned, but he was a, a designer who had an eye, an aesthetic eye, you know. So he would, uh, he designed uh, the swastika banner, he designed that. I mean, didn't design the swastika. That's an ancient symbol. But the way that it's turned, the way that it's tilted, the color, the way it's designed, the whole design of that flag uh, was his design. And so he had an eye for that sort of thing. You know, his uh, his code name uh, was Wolf. Wolf. And... Uh, because his name, etymologically, the name Adolf means noble wolf. In but anyway, that's uh, he was called Wolf, and so they built a town in northern Germany for the manufacture of his car, and of course it's called Wolfsburg. You probably must have used to see ads where the Volkswagen, and it was a Wolfsburg edition, meaning it was made there and not in Mexico or wherever they make a lot of them now. But uh, and if I had a Volkswagen was my first car in 1973, and it was made in Germany. But uh, and on the steering wheel, you look down, and there's a picture, a little uh, emblem of a castle with a wolf on top of it. I had yeah. three Volkswagens, and I never real, I never noticed that. And now I think about it, there it was. <laughs> there it was. That's Hitler there. <laughs> just, just like BMW, oh, Stephen. BMW. A lot of people don't know the emblem. With the little blue and the white, uh -huh. that is the actual yeah. uh, rot the rotors of a Nazi helicopter, isn't it? Oh, I am. Uh, yeah, they were. That's what they were. Not they were motorcycle makers and things before they got into cars, all kinds of things. Now, do colors came, of course. To what do you attribute the the fact Germany was more? Since, for example, you mentioned the Hitler and his his watercolors. But he was surrounded by scientists, technicians, engineers. To what do you attribute the fact Germany was more scientifically advanced than perhaps any other country in the world during the late 19th and early 20th centuries? Mm -hmm. Well, it's the university system that they uh, made, that they created, and the fact that it wasn't unified. It wasn't a national thing. So there was a lot of competition between and among the various states, Bavaria, uh, Prussia, Saxony, et cetera, and so forth. Uh, the university I, I went to uh, in Göttingen uh, was actually founded, it's called it George, George August University. It was uh, founded by George I, who was king of uh, England, but also Duke of Hanover. You know, that the royal house in England today, their real name is Hanover, but they changed it to Windsor uh, during the uh, First World War. You know, that's, oh, it can't be identified as Germans anymore. And so they uh, they changed that. But, uh, but the competition among all of the uh, schools that were very advanced, Vienna, Berlin, uh, then a lot of these university towns, Heidelberg, Göttingen, Marburg, Uh, just uh, it was an industry and uh, uh, that was uh, enthusiastically embraced, and everywhere, and say in the early 1800s, uh, 
Germany was identified, even the stereotypes of the crazy, nutty German professor. German, the stereotype of the German, say, in 1815 or something like that, was not a military uh, sort of guy like we kind of think the German uh, stereotype is today, but that of a dreamer, a poet, and a kind of a nutty, uh, eccentric professor type. When Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein, she had the monster was created in the German university town of Ingolstadt, which is where the University of Bavaria was at that time in 1813. So that was where you want, you know, that's where a person, if there's going to be somebody creating some living man out of a bunch of body parts, it's going to be in Germany because that's the kind of thing that they were uh, thought that they would be possible there because that's the kind of uh, stuff they were up to. So it was a stereotype, but it was a real thing in the sense that by the time Nobel Prize comes around, yes, there are more of them. Uh, and of course, many of them uh, were, uh, and because they emancipated the Jews so Thoroughly early on, there were a lot of Jewish uh, people. Obviously, or Einstein, you name them. There's uh, so many that, and they didn't block them. So I think that was also a tremendous. That's probably half of it because uh, the Jewish people, as a people, as a culture, uh, are very oriented towards learning. Right, but through originally religious learning, but a, a typical Jewish individual man. Uh, would be uh, probably trilingual, you know. He probably spoke Hebrew uh, for his readings, and then also the local language, uh, whether it's French or German or Dutch or whatever, and then also Yiddish, the language they spoke among themselves. So uh, you start to train a mind just as a normal life, you know, just the way life is lived, to, to have three languages and just motivated towards learning and towards uh, honoring and uh, making heroes out of intellectuals as part of the sort of the rabbinical culture. And uh, when then they come into science and technology at the university, they're very good performers because it's part of it. Uh, they value it so highly. And I think that uh, is uh, a large part of the German, the kind of success of German intellectualism. Now, you know, Nazis would hate to hear that, but that's what you know, it actually was by far, you know, quite a bit of that contribution by the uh, Jewish intellectuals. And that we, we uh, our country, United States of America, benefited so greatly from the Nazis persecuting the Jews because the the, the uh, uh, intellectuals, the professors, well, that's what we call the brain drain. I went to school, University of Texas, I was in the 70s, started there, and there were numerous professors who were, were refugees, of course, from Nazi Germany. But these were good, solid intellectuals that uh, had to flee, but they came here and we gained their uh, advantage from their learning. Here's the question, and I'll get your answer on the other side because we have to take a break. But this question, it's always in my mind, and many people are afraid to ask. But after reading your book, by the way, you did it, you did it from an objective standpoint, and you included facts as you found them without any prejudice or preconceived notion. I, I thank you for that. But why do history books, the media, and most mainstream narrative always talk about the six million victims of the Third Reich? But they hardly ever mentioned the 20 plus million the Soviets or the Bolsheviks liquidated. And we talk about the Holocaust, but hardly about the Holodomer. Uh, this is a controversial question. And I'll get your answer on the other side of the break. And, and, and we'll dive more into the occult roots of National Socialism. How can people buy the book, The Occult in National Socialism? Well, I would just uh, go to Amazon or to my website. It's just going to lead you to Amazon, but you might find some other books of interest at seekthemysteries.com. Uh, you can see uh, other things that I've done, so many of them related to this uh, topic also. Uh, 
but uh, I've written quite a few, oh, over 50 books, I think. I don't know whether 50 are on there, but that's, uh, that's the way I was raised. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, one more hour with Dr. Stephen Flowers. This is Mel Hostelrick, and you're listening to Veritas. When we come back, we'll discuss more of the occult in National Socialism. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first part of this important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the members section or join the Veritas family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. Subscribe today with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focus Life Force Energy. Get a 15-day free trial of FLFE today. We also have rebounders, pure organic sulfur, flash drives with all our Veritas and Sanitas seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share the video. Click on the notification button to be alerted when new interviews are available. Now, proceed to the member section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Thank you for listening to Veritas. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know.